I have a surprise for you. Oh my god, no. I know. What is it? You will never guess. Um, ever. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh my god, now I'm worried. <laughs> so, I'm genuinely frightened now. Here we go. Here we go. Watashi wa dare demo nai. Anato wa dare desu ka? Anato mo menashi-san desu ka? Sore nara iita mono dou shita wa himitsu ni shite ne minna ni いい触れされてるから、お偉いさんになるなんて、うんざり、オーピラですよ、帰るみたいに、名前を唱え続けるなんて、6月の間褒めてくれる泥沼なんかに。Do Emily poem into Japanese, or did you find a Japanese edition of Emily's poems? Tragically, it is the latter, not the former. <gasps> That's yeah. really cool, though. Like I, because I did understand understand yeah. half of what you were saying, but yep. I didn't. That's so interesting. <laughs> I like went to the bookstore and was just like explaining to the man. I was like, "Excuse me, sir. I am looking for the works of Emily Dickinson," and he like knew who she was first of all, and I was like, "Whoa." Uh, and yeah, I have an edition that has English on one side and Japanese on the other. <gasps> oh, I'm so, so jealous. That's very interesting. It's not all of them. Oh my God, that would be a massive thing. But yeah, it's got some of the greatest hits. And I am the question, though, Carl, through it. Yes. The question, Carl, is does it have the dashes, though? Oh, in the Japanese? Fuck no. We should probably tell people that they didn't already know they're listening to Edicts on Edicts. A podcast about Emily Dickinson, but now she rows, rows, rows her boat. (laughs) Yes, she does. Everyone, you have joined us for our final episode of this podcast. Oh my God. Yeah, this is the final episode of Edicts on Edicts. We're actually doing it. I can't believe it. It's been two years. If you've got yep. listeners, if you have got to this point, you are I just, an office I worker desperate to find something to laugh at. I mean, can you laugh at this? I don't think we're that funny <laughs> with you. Um, we make each other laugh, Carl, that's and that's true. what matters. That's true. But no, if you have got to this point, thank you so much for sticking with us all the way. Mm. Um, I know that we are unorthodox and rude and dense and... Yep. We don't really make much sense. All of the above. Um, this yeah. started as a little side project to entertain ourselves. And dunk and on somehow, some woman that we didn't like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But somehow, amazingly, it has weathered so much, to be honest with you. Literally um, a pandemic. Yes. One of us like, moving to the other side of the world. And yeah. And like multiple just multiple mental breakdowns. <laughs> multiple actual <laughs> mental breakdowns on both sides. I know. On both sides of the planet. <laughs> and yet yep. somehow we managed to, even though we were a bit inconsistent on timing, and I will cop to the fact that that is my fault. Um, we we still managed to keep this going. So if you're still here and you have listened to the episodes, then I admire you. You deserve a medal. Yes. You won't get one because I am poor. Uh, it's like it will not be coming to you, um, but you can make one. This is the last episode, isn't it? This is the season where we're, we're going to look at the season. Series finale. 
Oh gosh, yes, it this is. Was a poet written by mm. Elena Smith and R. Eric Thomas and directed by Elena Smith in her directorial debut. Wow. Yes. So it seems like the right note to end on. This was clearly like a massive artistic journey for her. And for it to be like her directorial debut, it seems like a pretty cool payoff. So good for you. Yeah, I think so. And I have to say, mm. I think we should take a moment just to admire Elena Smith, generally speaking. Truly. Um, we <laughs> have been immensely critical of her on this podcast. I mean, I, well, yes, I think of course we have. We ha- yeah, I, I mean, like, I think that it's always been meant in the spirit of, mm. no, I can't even bullshit that. That's just no. not true. We were assholes um, at some point and then yeah. we wised up, maybe. So, but I would like to say that uh, I don't think it's a perfect show by any means. No. Um, but it's a good show. Perfection doesn't exist anyway. But... Yes, exactly. And also you can tell mm. that Elena Smith was passionate about it. Damn right. And that she put that passion into it and that passion shines through. So Every I think that inch. yeah, we need to be grateful that she decided to make this show and yeah. make it happen. So do you imagine like how much work it took to pitch a TV show about Emily Dickinson in Hollywood? Well, I, I think that the platform it's on is very telling as well. Right. That's I, true. Like, I think that Apple TV plus was, that is obviously the platform that Dickinson is on is very much trying to define itself by off the wall content. And you can tell that by looking at a lot of the other shows that it's produced, right? Like it's, it's actually becoming, it's actually making a name for itself in comedy. Amazingly enough. Yes. I mean, you look at other shows like Ted Lasso and things like that. Oh, Ted Lasso. Um, I have thoughts, but that's fine. (laughs) Yes. Keep them to yourself for now. Thank you. We're not reviewing that show. We're not doing a Ted Lasso podcast. (laughs) No, oh my god, can you imagine? I mean, although actually, like the gays do Ted Lasso, that would be good. Oh god, are there any (laughs) gay people in Ted Lasso? Ooh, that's a question. I watched the whole show and yet I have no memory of queer people in it. I'm sure there's like Um, someone in the background to not alien anyway. Moving on, so just the fact that, like, I so I think that's maybe why Apple took it took it up because yes. essentially Dickinson is a family I think essentially is a family sitcom mm. that yes. revolves around an unconventional poet. Yes. Basically. And in that sense it kind of reminded me of another show we had in the UK called Upstart Crow. That, those are two words that I know. Yeah. So there was another, sh- there was a show in the UK called Upstart Crow, which was, um, which was about Shakespeare, uh, oh, who was played by a popular British comedian um, called David Mitchell. Oh, um, I know him. Uh, yes. Yeah. And uh, he's quite an intellectual in his spare time, but he, it was about, it was, it wasn't about like the creative genius of Shakespeare. It was mm. about uh, how no one in Shakespeare's family respected him or his work. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and, it, and, it was, and it was quite funny um, And this was kind of very similar And this episode I think touched on that a little bit too Oh so. 100% With the, the Higginson in the parlor Sequences <laughs> Yes Which I thought were very good I mean so what did you yes. generally speaking Before we get mm-hmm. into the nitty gritty of the episode Yes Did you enjoy this episode 
I did. I think it's an interesting finale for the character of Emily Dickinson because the previous episode is sort of the finale for Amherst. And yet like Emily herself in this doesn't interact with anyone in the family. Wait, well, she does. She has, she, oh, does she has, have a, she has the inter- with Lavinia. She has the, yeah. With Lavinia at the opening. And that's it. She doesn't speak to Sue. She doesn't speak to her parents. She doesn't speak to Austin. Like it's probably what the latter phase of Emily's life was like, where she's up in her room <laughs> imagining things. So I, I liked yeah. it. Yeah. I I felt very similarly. So like mm. exactly as you said, I wrote in my notes that Emily is conspicuous by her absence. Yes. That um, last shot in the parlor is probably my favorite shot in the episode where everyone's mm. just standing around thinking about Emily. <laughs> yes. And she's upstairs, but she's kind of there in their thoughts more exactly. than exactly. Yeah. It felt like a painting. Um, it felt like a 19th century painting, the way it's composed. You know, right. it really did. It actually yeah. reminded me of like of like paintings of like the Russian, like uh what the you know, the the aristocracy, the Tsar, and sure. like the whole family like gathered around. Just sitting. Like, <laughs> just sit, yeah, just sitting. One day I will be painted like that and they will hang my picture up and they'll say that was the supreme. Um <laughs> Sitting, lounging in a chair. Lounging in a chair with like a cigar <laughs> hanging out of my mouth, even though I don't smoke. <laughs> it's a prop cigar. It's cool. It's a, yeah, necessary. Mm. I, yeah, so like you, I also, I, I actually really, really loved this episode. And yeah. I will go so far as to say it's my favorite. Wow. Yeah. Even more so, than Split the Lark? It, even more than that. Wow. Even more than that. Wow. I I loved it and I thought that it was exactly the ending the show needed. Mm. Or, or was or to put it another way, that's slightly less complimentary. It was <laughs> it was the it was the best ending the show could have. He gets off on being withholding. <laughs> <laughs> I will never surrender all of the power. <laughs> No, I think it, I think it's a tremendous finale, and I think you're right. Like it is the best possible ending the show could have had, and yeah. I think it's clearly one that Elena Smith has had in her mind for a very long time because it feels very fully formed. Yes, mm. I imagine that she was paint had had spent a lot of time painstakingly mm. working on this script, perhaps mm. before even thinking about some of the earlier. Mm-hmm. episodes so would you like to summarize the episode for us and then we can discuss all right yeah emily having emerged from hell uh goes and tends to her flowers and while she's there she meets death and they have a discussion about the importance of death and his reassessment of his role in the world and his fancy new outfit which i was like this mm. khalifa looks really good in this suit yeah <laughs> i like does. it And so Emily takes inspiration from death, as she often does, and decides that she, too, needs a new dress and then spends the episode primarily working with Betty to design a new dress for herself. At the same time, the family is downstairs as Sue and Austin have come to reconcile and announce the name of their baby. Before they can do this, however, they are greeted by Colonel Thomas 
Hemsworth popcorn <laughs> or according to Maggie, I think Maggie steals the show. Like Lavinia is still my MVP, but Maggie is the yeah. sneak MVP. <laughs> like, yeah. And the episode ends with the family waiting for Emily to come downstairs as she goes to the sea of her mind. Mm. Yeah. And I loved it. It's fantastic. It, it is wonderful. I think that the first scene in the garden with death is actually the weakest mm. section of the episode. I that isn't to say it's that, bad yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, it's not, it's not bad at all. It, it really it was good that death appeared. Mm. And it's the first time that she sees death outside of his carriage. So he has come to see her. Yeah. He has come to see her. And as you say, like he has a new outfit, Emily. The, the one thing I wanted to say is like, um, one thing that Emily says in while well, she's in her garden, even before death gets that gets there, she says like, you know, this is the best social, the social event of the season. Exactly. And like, who yeah. needs people when you have flowers? And like, I used to say that when I was really depressed, I used to like, I, mm. it's kind of bad, but I was like, Oh, plants can't judge you or talk back to you. Like mm. they are just in their nature and have no, like falsity about them. Yes. If you see what I mean. Have you read that Mary Oliver poem where like the person talks like, they're like, Oh, what is my life? What am I doing? And then it just says like the sea calmly says in its beautiful voice, excuse me, I have work to do. (laughs) No, I haven't, I haven't seen that one, but I think that is kind of what I mean. Like nature is indifferent, Mm -hmm. but the indifference can be comforting as well as frightening because you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. The other thing I liked about the scene was that Death has this kind of a side where he's like, oh, you're on a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it kind of foreshadows the fact that Emily dies relatively young. Mm, she's in um, her mid-50s, yeah. She's got and, stuff to do. Yeah. She yeah, has a legacy exactly. to make. So I, I liked that. I don't mm. think... The scene like was nice. I, uh-huh. I don't think it particularly did anything beyond... Surface level stuff for me. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, we need the payoff to death. We need, I don't know, Emily's ascension to, you know, late stage Emily Dickinson. Late stage final evolution. (laughs) But actually, this is her like becoming the third Pokemon. Yeah, there you go. Three is. Elena Smith played Pokemon and she was like, I can do this, but with Emily Dickinson. (laughs) (laughs) And hence a three season show was developed. Perfect. (laughs) Nailed it. No, I was like, I also just love the image of her and death dancing together. And I will admit that I've listened to the song that they use there quite a bit. uh, The hell and back song, because I'm like, yeah, we're all doing this right now. We're all going to hell and back. (laughs) In the opening credits, there's a very pronounced mermaid that appears. Oh, yeah. And you've mentioned the mermaids before because they've the been... mermaids. So we had that mermaid appear in the gay bar, didn't we? And we also yes. had the there's, mermaid on the bedroom wall. There's been a mermaid on the bedroom wall through the season. So I just wondered what you thought. And, and obviously mermaids appear later on yes. prominently in the episode. So I know what the symbolism of mermaids is, mm. generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't determine for myself what the... In what the specific importance of the mermaid was mm. here. Well, I mean, again, I've read some interviews and I'm on 
mildly on Dickinson Twitter. So I've read a lot of people's theories and I've read what Elena Smith has said about it. So like in this specific instance, the mermaids are kind of the poems that Emily has yet to write. Right. Okay. It's interesting to connect it back to the the Faf bar scene because that is like mm. her first step of like self-acceptance and that coming mm. out to herself as being like, I love Sue. I am a queer woman. And then she dances with the mermaid. And mm. it is like this first sort of flirtation almost with who she actually is. Well, I think mermaids generally mm. have always been a symbol of artistic inspiration like even so like my so my university for example has Mm. two mascots um we had a two-headed lion as our mascot for sports Mm -hmm. um and then we had a mermaid as our mascot for academic excellence in the arts oh interesting yeah and actually there's a mermaid statue like if you google birmingham mermaid statue Birmingham. You actually were pretty good with that accent. <laughs> uh, and you'll like be able to see it. Oh yeah, there she is. And it's because mermaids kind of represent that, um, that inspiration. Mm, um, that, like, and, embrace like, of nature. Creativity and, and, and yeah. All of that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Um, and then the other thing that like occurred to me is um, that there's a kind of like, association with the little mermaid story right mm. and que- queerness um, oh 100 percent. like primarily like a transgender allegory but also just sort of queerness at large yeah exactly mm. so i wondered whether that was kind of also as you say like part of it like she had to accept her double nature almost to or just the the deviant for you know lack of a better word part of herself yeah i think the reason i say double nature is because i think emily a big part of the show is emily finding the balance between her identity as a poet Mm. and her identity as a daughter as like a dickinson yeah as a dickinson yeah that's the name of the show so i yeah but i couldn't i wasn't 100 percent sure so that's why i asked but Mm. i thought it was interesting that the mermaid was like signposted so significantly in the episode so and throughout the season i i think so much of it is the acceptance of that thing that is outside of societal norms yeah and how that embrace leads you to deep creativity if you choose to do it Mm. And, and also mermaids represent the subconscious because yes they are half above water, half below, right? And so it's the idea of like your awareness of your own subconscious. And even like the line of the poem is the mermaids in the basement come out, like they are part of this underworld almost of her mind. Mm. And so the Mm -hmm. way that that final sequence plays out is that, you know, these figures that not lurk, but just sort of reside in the, the hidden parts of her mind come out to help her, to guide her, to inspire her. 
or to seduce her. Like <laughs> I was about to say the sirens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, where, watch out where you're rowing that boat. Careful. <laughs> Tie yourself to the mast, bitch. Shit's about to get real. <laughs> so we also had, you said, you mentioned it as well, that mm. um, Emily doesn't really speak to anyone in her family except for... Lavinia in this next scene. Lavinia. Yeah. And I loved this interaction between Emily and Lavinia. Yes. Um, first of all, because I think it really mirrors in the very first episode. 100%. When Lavinia comes in and is like, you need to collect water. And then Emily's like, this is some bullshit. I think that Emily trying to get her dress off and then just like, just like screaming, like, Vinny, Vinny. (laughs) (laughs) And then Lavinia like appears as if she's just been waiting outside the door (laughs) to be cool. Like she's clearly got nothing better to do with her life. (laughs) She's got knitting to to tend to. But one of the things I like in the scene is that like, they have this interaction where Lavinia's like, oh, n- nothing can stop you like yeah. writing. Yeah. And then Emily says, oh, many, pe- many things have tried. And knowing how their relationship ends or not ends, yeah. but like, yeah, Vinny is ultimately responsible for her legacy in a way. Exactly. And yeah. like, and also for, again, like nurturing her, mm-hmm creative ability in that Lavinia kind of becomes both the barrier and the bridge to much of society, right? Yes. She's sort of the lock, isn't she? Like the lock as in like a damn lock where she sort of controls what comes in and what goes out. Like Vinny is that to Emily. Yeah. And we saw that a bit in A Quiet Passion as well, didn't we? Where Mm. um, Lavinia is kind of depicted as almost interceding trying to between, coax Emily out yes yes and like and being there to to kind of almost speak to Emily mm-hmm. on people's behalf so I think that it's interesting but I liked that they did have that interaction later in the episode when Lavinia says about Emily thinking she's like oh Emily's Emily has to think she's the only one of us that has that to do Exactly. And it's almost like a recognition. I think it's a line from one of Vinny's letters to somebody. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. It's... And I think it's an acknowledgement that Emily's thinking is important and mm-hmm. that it is in a way her vocation. It's what she is called to do. Yeah. Again, the show hasn't for a long time put a lot of emphasis on the relationship between the sisters. It's primarily been Emily and Sue. But this season has tended to the two of them in a way that I think shades where they go. So I'm really appreciative of that. It is interesting that it's not Sue that she has that interaction with, but mm-hmm. it is Lavinia. Because I feel like the previous episode is the the button on their physical relationship. And so now we transition into what comes next between them. Yes. Let's talk about the Dickinson family. Um, okay. Because I think we should end on Emily and Betty. Okay, yeah. Uh, so we have the reconciliation between Austin and Sue, where they come to name the child. Again, like you've said throughout the show, where like people sort of go to the Dickinsons to see like this weird family. And this mm. episode gives us that glimpse of like what they would look like to an outsider, which is yeah, complete insanity <laughs> yeah but charmingly so oh yes 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 
<laughs> Although um, I wonder how charming Lavinia's performance art would feel. <laughs> <laughs> it's very aggressive, isn't it? It's like it the sort of thing where like in real life you'd be like just slightly frightened. A little bit, a little bit. I, I liked this as well. Like I liked mm. the encounter on the doorstep where Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson are almost seeing their younger selves in mm-hmm. Sue and Austin. Uh, and they have this kind of slightly standoffish encounter. Yes. Uh, and just before that as well, the way that Austin and Sue almost in a very easy exchange clarify their relationship Mm-hmm. And Sue says, like, oh, well, not all happy families are conventional. Not all happy families are alike. Yeah, exactly. And considering how they've navigated their marriage. And I think it's also, like, very true that what makes one family happy and functional maybe isn't what makes another family happy and functional. And they have had to find their own way of doing it. And it's different from... Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson, um, mm. but that doesn't mean that it's going to be less successful. Especially knowing Mabel Loomis Todd is out there lurking like the, the shark in Jaws. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, I, mean, I think yeah. it's good that the show did this to sort of, I, again, I don't know how successful Sue's plotline has been this season in relation to Austin, but the mm. payoff has worked for me in the understanding that there is no template for like marriage and that ultimately two people have to work together to figure out how they can make this work. Yes. And and that if you do that, mm. there can be like fruits to that endeavor. Like you, yes. if you are in a relationship and you do learn how to work together as a team, it can mm-hmm. be rewarding for everyone. I think I agree, though, that I think this season didn't do enough to resolve some of the Mm. character tensions in Sue's character that were introduced in season two. I was thinking Um, about it. And, like, the thing that I want to critique the show on this season, which I I hadn't articulated until recently, is that it mm. almost feels afraid to engage with the consequences of sex. Yes, and I, like, I, I agree. Like it's weird because like the show engages with sex as like a frivolity in season one, but then when it gets into the darker parts of it and how sex can almost be used as a weapon, and the the damage that can be done by it, it's almost it's flinching, which surprises me. It does surprise me. It does surprise me because it's very relevant to the lives of women of that period. Yes. Um, it's very relevant to us now. I Absolutely. think there's, I, I do think though that there's this kind of denial though in society at the moment, mm. like either people are on one end where they're very prudish about sex and they, they think that sex is very bad and mm-hmm. all these things, you know, these anti- antiquated views as we would think of it about sex or they've almost gone the other way where it's not, not, not just like about consent, but, but also kind of like, oh, people shouldn't take sex too seriously. And sure. it's just about two people enjoying each other. And like it's just a fun activity. Yes. Yeah. And like, I think that there are kind of parts of our society that have done that now where I think especially mm. amongst the mm. gay community, to be honest. Oh yeah. hundred percent. 
like people now it's people almost think it's gauche if you suggest that sex has some impact on love or that sex has some impact on intimacy mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's it's considered kind of quaint and like outdated yeah yeah outdated and like the thing is is that that's just not true like demonstrably well, it, it depends people- on like if two people are, or more, if that's what you're into, if you are willing to like discuss and understand that there will be consequences of these actions, like sure. But to ignore it, I don't know, that just feels naive. I think like it's so the way, I mean, my personal opinion now, I think that sex always creates an irreversible connection between you and the person you've had sex with. Hmm. And like, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a Hmm. good thing. I just say like, my observation is that once you have been in that kind of intimacy with someone, you then have that, have a connection to that person and that that connection can end up being a channel for all kinds of things. And also that sex is like so significantly linked to people's psychological needs oh yes oh <laughs> absolutely like That's whether true. it's whether it's like emotional need or mm, or sex drive or, yeah or, exactly you know, like i think that people almost always end up projecting things onto the people that they have sex with like absolutely. i just think it's like an inevitable hmm. reality of sex that mm-hmm. that you have to be really in, you have to be actually like really intimate with someone as in like 15 years or more married intimate with someone, mm-hmm. I think to get to the point where you don't have sex and end up putting some of your projected needs onto them. Yes. You know? And so I think that's something that maybe uh, we don't acknowledge enough anymore. And um, I think the show, like my biggest critique of this, you know, the triumvirate of Emily, Sue, and Austin is that like that mm. element isn't really engaged with. Like, no, Emily and Austin have their issues this season, but it is removed from her issues with Sue, and her issues with Sue, like Sue's issues with Austin are removed from Emily. And I think the reality is that it would be far more entangled than the show. In, like creates so i just i don't yes. know that's my biggest critique like, of the season yeah and i agree because i think that no matter how enlightened austin mm. may have been mm-hmm. for his time i just don't think there's any way in that his knowledge that his sister would be sleeping with his wife mm. would not have an effect on the relationship and i think that mm. austin's a lot of sue and austin's problems are ascribed to other things. Yes. And there's very little acknowledgement of the fact that fundamentally a lot of it is to do with Austin's envy of Emily and Sue's relationship. Yes. And Sue's reluctance to be intimate with Austin. Mm. Mm. And that those things clearly are related to one another. Yes. Like, and the show like really doesn't engage it with, engage with that at all that inherent messiness like it it faints at it but it ultimately turns away yeah you're right like it kind of the final season is kind of like season two with Mm. sue's character 
and Austin and Sue's marriage really set up interesting questions about, you know, because we don't know. I mean, it's, we think now that it's probably likely that Emily and Sue were lovers in some respect, right? But we don't know <laughs> what the nature of their relationship was exactly. I'll but, allow it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like, come on. Like, yeah, there's they, no way of like, being 100% he, certain. Yes. Yeah. That's and, fine. And, and also, like, they maybe wouldn't have described themselves as lesbians, right? Mm, like, mm-hmm. th- we don't know what they considered about themselves. Like, that's Fair. something that we yeah, can't determine. them, and we will never exactly. know. Yes. Exactly. But I think that that relationship would have caused, as you say, a great deal of messiness. And season two set that up. And I think especially with Sue's character, yes. where she was in denial about so many things and she definitely saw sex as something, not as a weapon, but I think as like... A, a means of avoiding like larger emotional issues in a way. Yeah. And then it's like season two, season three is just like, well, she had a baby and now everything's different. Yeah. Like there's, there's this, the beginning of the season has Emily very uncomfortable with like the pregnancy. And then like, there are things later on where like Sue makes that reference, like, Oh, the two of us, like me and Emily and Austin is there. And that's sort of what sets him off, but it's never fully dealt with. No. In season three, Austin ascribes a lot of his anger and resentment to his father. Yes. Which is fair and legitimate. Mm. But I would have felt like his arc of his rejection of the family would have had more impact if it was two-pronged in that it was, Mm. my father is a crap father and my My sister has betrayed me with my wife. But yeah, so I think that's something that like I wanted to see for the season and then it just mm. didn't really come full circle mm. on that. It just felt a little pat in a way that the show hasn't done in other respects. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like I feel like the show has has pursued other elements to their mm. logical conclusions. Mm-hmm. Like but that maybe for whatever reason they decided to simplify the familial mm. relationships going into season three. Mm. Um, Sue's character, especially, I felt that her role was diminished a bit in that I feel she literally had less to do and like had fewer interactions with other characters of note. Mm. There are a few episodes where she's just kind of like there. To move pieces around. <laughs> yeah, or just to like be present. Yeah. Well, especially because I think she's such like she is the arc of season two. Yeah, like definitely. Sue is what makes season two function, and it builds to that scene between her and Mary of like you don't have to push the pain away, and her finally embracing like all of the things that have happened to her, and then being mm. able to go to Emily in that finale and push past the wall she has built to like connect with her physically. Yeah. And this season is about the emotional connection, but it's also done in just a way that feels a little easy compared to what the show has previously delved into before. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think so. All that to say, still a good sequence of stuff downstairs. 
Oh, 100%. Like, I yeah. love the, I mean, just to say about Sue's character, I, mm. I do love the bit where um, Higginson comes and they're going to serve him tea and Mrs. Dickinson is, like, being sniffy about his yes. jacket and stuff. <laughs> and then Sue's like, you know, listen here and listen good. <laughs> like, and she gives I, her, like, the... I screamed at the reference to the frugal housewife. I was yes, like, I oh my I God, it like, came back. <laughs> yes. I love the fact that like Sue has like potentially moved on and like uh, Sue's mm. kind of become like the uber Mrs. Dickinson. Yeah, totally. She has evolved. <laughs> she has and also sent the third stage Pokemon. <laughs> exactly. And also like I reflected on the fact that actually neither Emily or Lavinia will ever actually be Mrs. Dickinson, right? That's true. But Sue oh, is whoa. Mrs. Dickinson. That's so true. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. She 100% is. But then, yeah. like, later on in life, after all the Dickinsons have passed away, like, Sue then goes on to, like, travel a lot, like, to see mm. a lot of the world. And so that's sort of the thing that Mrs. Dickinson was never able to do. Yeah. So she but is the uber so. Mrs. Dickinson, totally. Yeah, and and th- I think that we get that acknowledgement when Mrs. Dickinson is like, she's like, what does she say? She's like, Susan, Susan Dickinson, you really are that bitch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just made a note where I was like, are these two going to make out? Like, <laughs> maybe it's just like Jane Krakowski has like chemistry with anyone. Yeah, but I was just so. like, there's like a a weird undercurrent in this scene. (laughs) The way she's looking at her, like, I created this. This is me. But she did. And like, I think that I love that Sue, after everything Sue's been with, I imagine that she still sometimes sits down Mm. and reads The Frugal Housewife. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, I've said it before, but I think like you are more of an Emily Dickinson kind of person. I'm definitely more of a Susan Gilbert kind of person (laughs) because I 100% take pride in my home. I mean, I know you do as well, but I take a lot of pride in my home economics and I like hosting people. I do not. And like all (laughs) of that kind of stuff. So I relate to that side of it, if you see what I mean. No, absolutely. I love it. I love it. I love it. Also, fucking Sue reading the the baby letter. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, that was cute. That was cute, but it also made me realize that I'm glad I'm a homosexual. (laughs) Straight people, that that would be, like, there is an Instagram that I follow called, like, Heads Explain Yourselves. 100% (laughs) would be featured in Heads Explain Yourselves, even though Sue is queer like, that's like that's like the that's like the reddit um are the straights okay oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can please <laughs> just like, oh, like oh my god. god which also that letter a real thing they really they wrote a letter to mr dickinson as the baby asking <laughs> for permission to use his name yes <laughs> oh boy that's so, like gender reveal parties. It totally is. Like, we should be glad they didn't burn the house down <laughs> in this, the course of this. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. But yeah, you're right. Like, when Higginson comes to visit and everyone has that kind of like, they have their own. Yeah. And I thought the genuinely funniest moment in the entire show was when 
Lavinia had done her little performance piece in her knitted like <laughs> yeah. thing, and then Sue's like, "This isn't Emily, by the way." And Lavinia falls over and knocks Sue over. Yes, and Austin, and then Austin screams. Like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was like the funniest thing because I imagined that that was a mistake. That has to be a blooper, and yet yeah, they were it like, just... "It's perfect. Leave it in." <laughs> exactly, and I just thought it was so funny. <laughs> Oh my goodness. No, it's incredible. But I liked that even more than I liked Emily falling down the stairs in Wild Nights. Wow. Something has surpassed that moment. Oh my God. Yeah. And that was the bit of the episode where I was like, this is it. This one's my favorite. I do like the discussion that Austin and Mr. Dickinson have Mm. about the law case. Yes. Austin makes his kind of speech where he says like, we have to be part of the new world or crumble to dust. Angeline Palmer is real, obviously. Like that is a real case mm. that they took on. They are playing a bit with the timeline. I believe it happens in the 1840s. So it would have already been and gone by the time the yes. Civil War rolled around. But it's still like, it works in terms of, you know, the Dickinsons having to be a bit more, you know, progressive by force necessarily if you want um one of the other dickinson podcasts the the slave is gone does have an episode all about the angeline palmer case so you should look it up yeah that's worth listening to absolutely find out a bit more mm-hmm. and i, I liked that they did that because i think it continued because because austin in season again this is like a season two thing that didn't really endure mm. through season three yes but austin in season two, he was kind of quietly quite revolutionary. Yes. Um, in that he was he was almost like what you would actually want Higginson to be, rather than <laughs> oh, that's true. You know, Where he's actually like, doing something and giving up power versus like self-aggrandizement. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. And also, like in season two, like Austin never makes a big thing out of what he's doing. Yes. Um, and he doesn't really tell anyone else in the family. And mm. he's giving money to support this cause, but he never he never kind of holds that over anyone mm-hmm. or uses it for his own reputation. Yes. And they just, again, they didn't really like carry that forward into season three. Mm. Um, we see it and- sort of pay off here in like, it's a synthesis of Austin's values, but it is a yes. little abrupt. But, you know, it's, it's Elena Smith's show and like mm. she if she thinks that the character of Austin needed to develop the way it did, then, mm-hmm. then that's how he developed. So, Other um, bit that I want to acknowledge before we move on is Mrs. Dickinson's line that made me laugh really hard, which is, oh yes, whatever happened to that bee? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Justice yeah. for the bee. <laughs> yeah. Where, where was the bumblebee? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the last time we saw it at Emily's funeral at emily's funeral yeah season one yeah so much of this show lives in my brain now ah (laughs) but the the fundamental thing about this bit is Mm. first of all that it gives us the insight into what the dickinson household will become yes and the power dynamics Mm -hmm. in the future dickinson household because i felt like this was really the moment when mr and mrs dickinson acknowledged that the patriarch and matriarch Mm -hmm were going to be Austin and Sue. Yeah, they've been eclipsed. Yeah, 
Yeah. It, as I say, like it's they've been mirrored by their younger, more progressive selves. Absolutely. And the key thing here was that Higginson arrives and as you said, he provides us with the insight of an outsider looking in, but he also asks the very key question of uh, when did you realize that your daughter was a genius? <laughs> they're like, huh? Yeah. And like, they're all just completely clueless about this. And I think that again, like summarizes a theme of the show, which is that Emily in her time was an unrecognized genius. Well, he says people might have to wait centuries to understand her, but we mm. do cut to Sue. And yes. Sue has this moment of like, but I already do without saying a word because Ella Hunt is a very talented actress. Um, mm. But it is just this moment of there is someone who understands her. And I think without, you know, putting a sledgehammer to it, that's kind of the point of the show is that. Emily is both not recognized in the larger world, and yet there was someone who recognized her. And also, I think that she was, I mean, the show goes a long way to essentially bust the myth that mm. Emily was, as Sylvia Plath in the show puts it, like depressed and yeah. dreary and all these things. Mm. And the show shows that Emily wrote for herself at the end yeah. of the day. Like she didn't mm -hmm. write for, she wrote for Sue and she wrote yes. for herself. And that was what she cared about, mm. you know? Yeah. And she says, Emily says, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a moment, but Emily says in the episode, you know, I'll keep writing even if it makes no oh, difference. It makes me cry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that like part of the show from Emily's character mm. where she's had all these interactions with famous writers and she's really meditated on, the nature of art and the nature mm -hmm. of fame and mm -hmm. the and the purpose of art you know and i think she's come to this conclusion of maybe that art is its own justification mm. the act of um, creation is validation yeah the art yeah. doesn't have to have a purpose that it doesn't have to make you famous um, yeah. it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to give it everyone hope yeah it doesn't like, have to be any more than what it is yeah and i think that's like another theme that has gone throughout mm. the entire show very quickly just want to say that maggie again secret mvp of the show with the she fills the bathtub in season two but she also says the spare the poets line and yes I, and i think i want actually that's, that's true that's where the room got very dusty like i think that that's very true like um mm. so i wanted to talk about that a bit and actually talk about because that's where we get the transition isn't it into the montage of emily in her being room. a poet yes yeah. um which again was like my favorite thing of the episode it's, um, it's, it's incredible the the final bit is so good so maggie talks about how in ireland during the mm. wars between the, the clans. clans all the clans would agree not to kill the bards and that's actually like a true thing and as she says because someone has to stay alive to tell the story and also because uh it doesn't matter how heroic you are on the battlefield if there's no one there to tell anyone else about it then where's the glory in that you know right achilles um, glory is dependent on homer existing yes. yeah exactly 
Actually, that's kind of relevant uh, mm-hmm. when you mention Achilles, because Achilles actually early in his life is presented with two choices. He can choose to be famous and have glory, but die young or mm. live comfortably and happily, but die unknown and anonymous. Mm. Uh, and Achilles actually deliberately makes the choice of going like, for chaos going for glory. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like a hundred percent. So it's, it's really interesting, but that was the kind of value system mm. back then. And yeah, just the idea that poets, poets are a kind of priestly for the Irish clans, you know, the yeah, poets they have a are, sacred role. Yeah. They had a sacred role. They were, they mm. were a priestly class of people mm. and um, you don't fuck with that. You know? <laughs> no, absolutely. I've been reconciled because like the fa- like my family is historically Irish and yet I know so very little about it. Um, mm. And I often reflect on like the Irish in particular when they moved to America, like once you got out of those sections of cities that had like, you know, Irish people, mm. we jettisoned a lot of our history. And then like on top of that, um, the Irish themselves as subjects of British colonialism sort of lost mm. that connection to their history. I don't know if you've read Ulysses. You do not have to read Ulysses. Um, <laughs> but part of what it does is like in those early chapters, Buck Mulligan, who is British and a scholar, is the only one who speaks Gaelic. Like he is, mm. and the Irish themselves have lost that. And so well, that's like- a big- yeah, yeah, I've just been I've, reconciling recently with like I started reading like old Irish folk tales because I was just curious as to what that lineage is because I don't know. And there's a lot of um research going into that now. I mean, mm. it, there's been a sense for a while in the British Isles that we have sacrificed a lot of our traditional culture to yeah. modernism, yeah, and to globalism. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because the predominant culture in London is one of global capitalist yes. hegemony, you know, yes. mm-hmm. uh, and that culture and London is the most dominant city in the British Isles and has complete financial sway over the rest of the country. Mm. So that culture kind of has got to the point now where it it does kind of suppress the culture of the other areas of the country i think it would be fair to say but both ireland and wales have made significant efforts to revive their own languages and cultures and wales actually is seeing quite a lot of success in spreading the welsh language again actually this past year i had a meeting with a documentary company in wales and Mm. they are exclusively like employing welsh people and broadcasting in both english and welsh well, the BBC now has a radio station mm. that is just in Welsh. The other half of all this is that I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin recently, who is a Black American man who left America to live in France for a while. And he talks a lot about how that dislocation caused him to reassess his relationship with English, mm. but also how a lot of what they will do in the early stages of colonialism is to break connection to language because that is Mm -hmm. the connections to the past. And someone said, I forget who that like 
memory is to the individual as tradition is to the community and to break that language is to break that connection to tradition and to lose that is to lose such a massive lineage of, of, you know, history and Mm -hmm. connection and community. And I think to fold it back into the show, like what Elena Smith did was sort of reach back into the past and pull that into the present to be like, no, America is not as neat as we have been taught as the fairy tale of America would have us believe. And I think that is profoundly interesting because this show is tangling with language in a Mm. very profound way. And I think that last sequence is very pointed in how Emily and how poets in general relate to language. And I think there is a massive tackling of how our relationship to language has been so diminished. Well, also like, I think like, it sounds really silly, but my experience as a teacher Mm. is that people now don't understand the vital importance of developing their language skills. And I don't Mm. just mean learning foreign languages, but I Mm. also mean learning your own language. Yes. Um, And, people use the English language so inaccurately a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being innovative with the English language. There is nothing wrong with using slang, using jargon. There's nothing wrong with adapting it to suit Mm. your life and the way you want to communicate. But there is certainly, I think, something wrong when you lack a vocabulary sufficient to express your needs and your emotions and when it impedes your ability to communicate because you don't know enough of the language to do so effectively. I think there is a push and pull between like how people express themselves and what is accurate or what is, you know, I hesitate to use the word correct because theoretically there shouldn't be a correctness, but there is sort of a, a realization of like the distance between the thought in my brain and how I articulate it is dependent on my language. Yes. Because I have felt it again, like this is something I have felt as I work on Japanese where like I have felt that distance decrease. It is still massive. It is still an enormous gap. And yet it has closed as I study daily. I get closer to how I am actually thinking. Yes. And so I think we as a people need to sort of have this critical relationship with language. Yeah. And I think that's why people also venerated the bards and venerated the storytellers Mm -hmm. because they were the keepers of the words. Yes. You know? And like, if you didn't know how to express something or if you, if you needed to know how to speak for something, yes, yes. they were the people you could go to and, and they knew, mm. you know, and that's an, again, like something I feel like we've lost in that people now, I don't want to say people don't care about poetry because they do, but people I feel don't always see the value in. in we would, we would sacrifice so much for the sake of, I don't know, comfort or the sake of ease when actually like what poets do and what Emily does is incredibly difficult and hard and like to engage with language in a critical way 
it's painful to some extent. Mm. And to do that, and I think like that's where the parallels and this will allow us to transition into the second storyline of the episode, but like the parallels between Emily and Henry in terms of the pain that accompanies expression like are made very like explicit in those parallels. And I think the payoff of the Henry storyline, which is something I had been very critical of from the the early stages of the show, like it is beautiful in how it pays off. And I could not have seen it coming because I think Mm. it's, it's beautiful and it is discussing language and writing and what it takes to make your voice heard. So let's move on to the second storyline of the episode, which is Emily and Betty working together to create a dress. Mm, um, I mean, I, I liked Betty visiting and that I love she it. visited with the mm. intention of kind of apologizing to Emily. But then I don't, it, Emily doesn't say it, but I think Emily kind of this time has a much better response to, to Betty in that she doesn't try and like gainsay mm. Betty's despair. Mm-hmm. Um, or Betty's sadness. Like she doesn't mm. say, Oh, you know, you shouldn't be sad because everything's going to be okay. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She just says, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? And like, sometimes that is the only response you can give to something. And what I think is beautiful in this sequence is that like, there's this implicit recognition of Betty as an artist in her mm. own right that Emily does. And I think it parallels what happens in this Shakespeare episode where Emily sort of pushes her crap onto Henry. Mm. And in this, she stands back and gives Betty ideas and Betty goes with them and goes further. She, she has the experience to take it further. Yes. Yeah. And that's the difference of Emily right now. Exactly. And I think um, the emphasis on making the dress is important as well. As you say, like mm-hmm. death has said it's a uniform for her work. Yes. yes. And Betty understands that. And she doesn't question Emily on it. She no. She helps Emily realize mm-hmm. that, you know, and it's like two artists coming together to meet each other's needs. Emily sort of articulates these things and Betty is able to take the words and translate them into physical things. Yes. And you yeah. can almost see, and maybe this is me projecting, but you can see Elena Smith working with her costume designer because the costumes of the show have been so incredible and so mm. sewn into the fabric of the scripts and of the episodes that like, that has to be what's happening on some level. Like she has Mm -hmm. had these meetings before where she'll sit there and like philosophize about, you know, the dress is light or like, I want to journey to the end of consciousness. And she's like, okay, so no dress on this one, like no trail on this. Yeah, no trail. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. Like I can very much imagine Elaine Smith having those kind of meetings and Mm -hmm. that informing the scene. I don't know. I find it to be... The, the implicit payoff of Emily's character arc is that she is able to step back and recognize artistry in another person and give it space to inform her artistry. And ultimately like that is what 
artists should be doing is like working together in different mediums to sort of find these new ways of expression. And what I will say, and maybe this will get cut out of the episode too, is like over the past two years, I've been sort of reconciling my sartorial choices in that I've been able to look back at how I have chosen to dress myself and found that I have been afraid of like engaging with who I actually am. Mm. Uh, and that is like a thing that I'm still trying to figure out, but like, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of mm, queer people, people yeah, have to go through. Absolutely. Um, I similarly have been trying to get more comfortable with being more public with my feminine tastes in exactly hundred percent. I that's that's what I was going to say is like. So this past summer I was in America and I went to a thrift store and I found a crop top that is clearly for a woman. And it was this like pinkish orangish hue. And I went to the register with it. Cause I was like, no, this is what I want to wear. And the woman at the register, when she was checking, like checking me out, just said like, Oh, electric melon is my power color this year too. Like you're going to look so good in this. And it made my life like i still think about that woman <laughs> she has no idea like but it just meant the world to me that this woman sat there and was like oh you're gonna look so good in this because this is the color that i like too electric yeah. melon like <laughs> i mean i think that if you ever have a band you should call it electric melon <laughs> um, my production company will be called electric melon <laughs> i think that's great i think i think but that's that's the thing, like one of mm. the things I think about life generally, which is like, so like I had a similar thing to you in that mm. I've always loved beautiful things, right? Yeah. Like whether it's clothing, whether it's objects, whether it's furniture, whether it's paintings, whether it's plants, whether it, whatever it is, anything yes. that's, I'm just such a magpie for, <laughs> for, for, for pretty things, you know? And like, I have realized recently, like, especially in relation to me thinking about disability and my own illness and stuff mm -hmm. um and i was like well i still take like i i struggle with thinking that my body's kind of gross now and stuff but at the same time i think well yes maybe like i'm kind of gross in some ways now but i kind of leaned more into thinking like well, do you know what? I'm going to spend real money on nice clothes yep. that I like, mm -hmm. that I can wear. I'm going to wear pink, you know? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to have like jewelry. And yeah, yeah. And the other thing that made me think that is, and this is going to sound horrible, and I'm sorry to any British listeners that are listening to this, but people in this country just dress so fucking horribly. <laughs> well, is it, that, like, is it like being afraid? of, of that's taking what, that yeah. like like i think british well this is my thing like i think british people just like are so scared to be anything but gray you know and like they just wear like gray with like yeah. a gray top and then like a gray thing mm. gray coat mm. and then it's like or just like navy blue and i love navy blue in its place you know Absolutely. i love gray as well mm -hmm. and also no one wears like interesting fabrics or mm. like 
garments that are cut yeah. to provide an interesting silhouette. And I mean, Japan has similar sorts of things where like in Tokyo, especially a lot of people will dress in like the, the Tokyo uniform. And like, there are times where I feel as though Tokyo particularly is very monochromatic and frustrating. And yet there will be people in like incredible outfits. I was riding the subway recently and there was like a man wearing these like 1970s floral print pants. And I was just staring at them like, I want those pants. Where did he get them? Like mm, They look mm. fucking incredible, especially amongst like the sea of gray. But also, like, a lot of the time when you do break out and you do dress mm-hmm. the way you want to, mm-hmm. um, some people might ridicule you, but I think the vast majority of people look at you yeah. and just as you were looking at that guy on the subway, they think, oh, God, I would like to dress that way. Yeah. You know? No, I'm, I'm low-key regretting not telling him that he looked amazing, but <laughs> that's fine. The next person I see like that, I'll be like, oh, my God, you look so good. And like, um, just like that woman did for you with the electric melon crop top, like, <laughs> yeah. I think that the, the only actual sensible reaction to someone choosing to express themselves mm-hmm. with something like that mm-hmm. is one of encouragement and uplifting yeah. sentiment, you know? Critique has its yeah. place. And, you know, we can speak to that from the experience of this podcast critique Mm. has its place but like snark is just masking insecurity yeah exactly there's a difference absolutely um i love the whole design address segment of the episode i think it really speaks to the queer experience i think Mm -hmm. it speaks to the creative experience i think it Um, speaks to the experience of women yeah yeah Mm -hmm. wanting to free yourself from a corset and I like that Emily says it has to be white and um, the kind of white you get in the spring. Yes. You know, and I think that is kind of in the inherent innocence maybe of, mm. of the poet, you I know. Good artists have a very intelligent connection to their child self, especially when we read like Higginson's account of like meeting Emily for the first time, like the real Higginson, where he talks about this like weird naif like child who like presented flowers and, you know, was very sort of childish. Like Emily probably was childish in many respects, but she also was a fucking disciplined artist who was able to tap into that and like, create you don't write almost 2000 poems by being like a weird little child figure you do it by being able to tap into that and be an artist we also get a resolution to betty's storyline in that higginson gives her Mm -hmm. the letters Mm -hmm. that um henry had written for her and also informs her that Henry is alive and has survived the battle. And it's just lovely. It's incredible. It's a lovely ending. so good. You know, and Higginson says something. Great writing finds a way to reach its audience. Exactly. Which is the single wisest thing Higginson has said. Yeah. (laughs) And it's true for Emily as well, right? Because like, here we are, her writing reached its audience in the end, or at least we hope it did. Um, there may be a greater audience that have yet to I was going to say, I think it. the show has largely been underappreciated in the moment. 
And I wonder like a few years from now, are they going to come across it like larger populations and realize this is the double-edged sword of Apple TV plus like without Apple, they couldn't have made the show, but Mm. also Apple is so exclusionary with their Mm. streaming service. Mm. Like I'm, I'm almost semi convinced that, that someone in Apple doesn't want it to be a success because, (laughs) because like it's, they, they're making good shows, it appears. Mm. And also, they ha- as you said before, like they haven't really advertised no. Dickinson. It's weird um, because I'm getting alerts now, and I'm like, well, that's a bit late. Yeah, it's been Apple. like two years. Like, where... <laughs> but no, that's like, fine. Good writing has a way of reaching its audience, so there you go. So then from the Betty mm. scene mm. with the letters, we finally get this montage of Emily yeah. and it's set to um, the, the music of Eric Sartre, right? The gymnopodies or however. Yeah. I, I am not, I am sorry to everyone for what I just said. <laughs> no, no. To be fair, French is like, I could never. You, you I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? But I do love this piece of music. And actually Me too. this made me really think of recently because I'm a massive fan of, Natalie Wynn and ContraPoints. I was about to say, ContraPoints did this. <laughs> and she did a live thing of it. Yes. And she and in, and she talked about her first love being music yes. and her artistic aspirations that were foiled and stuff, mostly by her own self-doubt. And that really made me think of this. But I did love this montage. I want to say, though, for the Natalie Wynn bit, she does talk about that, but she also, in that same section, talks about the root of the word amateur. And I think, mm. again, to discuss like the importance of understanding language and what it yeah. means to lose that connection, like that bit where she talks about the root of amateur comes from love. Like professionalism mm. has to do with making money. Amateurism isn't about being bad at a thing. It is about doing a thing for love. Yes. And that yeah. is important. And that they understood matters. that yes. back in Emily's time in Victorian yeah. period, they understood it wasn't an insult to be exactly. an amateur. Yes. Because right? in um, a way, Emily is an amateur poet. Like, yeah, she is. Yeah. She publishes She's 10 not, in her life and they are all anonymous. And she doesn't get paid. Nope. She's, you know, she doesn't make any money from what she does. She, she does, does it out because of love. She loves it. And that leads to the montage. (laughs) Yeah. And the montage is lovely because it is, Mm. I mean, it did leave me thinking like, what did Higginson do when Emily just like never materialized? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) He's still down there waiting for her. Yeah, exactly. And all the Dickinsons are like gathered around, like, I'm sure she's coming down any moment now. (laughs) She's just like doing her knitting upstairs, like writing poems and stuff. I love the seasons. It's incredible going around outside the window, and like mm-hmm. I was like, "This is." It's almost like Emily made the dress, yeah, and and she was like, "This is it now." Like, it's time for me to settle down and mm. do my work. Do the work, and the work was me in this room with all of nature going on outside the window and mm. produce poems. And what I see as I look out the window. Because it's not like she's isolated and it's not like she's hermetically sealed from the world. Like the world is informing her poetry and that Hmm. matters. I actually think that for the real Emily Dickinson, one of the most interesting things about her Hmm. 
was her isolation. And often I think that if we were to compare Emily to other historical women, a really good comparison would be Julian of Norwich. I don't know her. Okay. That's um, not me being Mariah Carey. I legitimately do not know her. No, that's absolutely fine. Most people don't, but she's actually a very important woman. Yeah, okay. So 1343 to 1416. Julian of Norwich, she was an English anchoress. So what this means is that she was a nun um, Mm. and that she lived in permanent seclusion in a single cell, in a single room with just one window that looked out um, onto Norwich, which was a medieval town Mm. in the UK. She, during her lifetime, she she got very ill. And remember that this is like during the time of the Black Death. Mm. She got very, very sick. She nearly died when she was aged 30. And during her time when she was very sick, she believed that she had uh, several intense visions of the passion of Christ. And she then spent the rest of her life living in a single room, in a single cell. And she produced a text that is called The Revelations of Divine Love, which was theologically very avant-garde it was very Mm. beyond its time and essentially the message of revelations of divine love was god is not angry with us god loves us Hmm. and that was revelatory at the time (laughs) and that was revelatory at the time and um because it was the time of the black death and everyone was was kind of like my god you know jesus do this to us yeah yeah you know but Julian of Norwich, even though she spent her whole life Mm. living in this one room, produced one of the most important pieces of writing of her time. And also people traveled from all over Europe Mm. to visit her and, Mm -hmm. and, and talk to her. So it's just that kind of thing of like, Emily isn't locking herself away in her room because she's scared of the world. Like, yeah, she's, she's going, she maybe is going into seclusion, but seclusion doesn't necessarily mean like isolation. Yes. It, it, it can mean like a, it's focus. A, it's focus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because like yeah. Julian of Norwich had to go into that seclusion so that she could then take the visions she'd had and mm-hmm. turn them into something words. that could be passed down. Yeah. yeah, words, literally words. Again, the thoughts in your brain and how you get them out and the importance of language. Yeah, just looking at the Wikipedia article here, Julian of Norwich was first properly published in 1843 and then again in 1864. Oh, do you think Emily read her? Well, maybe, who knows? Yes, yeah, so we have this lovely montage and then Emily, mm-hmm. and throughout the montage, Emily... We get Haley Seinfeld reading lines of Emily's poems, don't we? Yes. Um, related to the seasons or related to the action. So I, you know, I, we we don't have the time to go through is, all of them here. No, but, it is tremendous what this last sequence does. And I don't think we actually see Emily with anyone else, do we? After no. that point, no. I mean, unless you count mermaids and a dog. <laughs> Which Emily did have a dog. His name was Carlo. Uh, and that's what he looked Aww. like. That's so, so I'm glad she had a dog because that's yes. all you really need in life, isn't it? <laughs> a, a dog and your brother's wife. 
and you're set. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We should write a biography of Emily and we should call it A Dog and A Dog my- and My Brother's Wife. <laughs> <laughs> By Emily Dickinson slash fiction. It's real weird. So, and then in the end, Emily, we get this kind of ethereal mm. scene of Emily on the beach and then she sees the mermaids <laughs> and then she she rows off into, she gets into a boat, little rowboat, and she rows off. To meet the mermaids. To meet the mermaids, yeah. And it just ends with what? Wait for me, I'm coming. Yeah, that's what, I think that's the last line, isn't it? That's what she says. But also, like, I wondered if that was also an allusion to her death, you know? Mm. I mean, it might be. I feel like Emily Dickinson was not afraid of death. I think she was afraid of grief. I think I am very much afraid of grief. I think we all are. I think we get the two confused. I don't necessarily fear my own death, but I fear the death of the people I love because I know that I will have to go through grief and I hope that I have the tools necessary to... to Survive. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so I think that that's the thing. Like, I I think a lot of Emily's poems about death are remarkably positive about the actual death bit and are very... Fearing, uh, fearful of the grief. Mm-hmm. Even though she writes a lot about death, I think that my favorite thing that Emily has written about death was actually in relation to her friend Ben. He right, strayed too close to immortality. Yeah, so like he, yeah, mm-hmm. he strayed too close to immortality and never returned. Yeah, and like I think that that for me captures the mystery and also the essence of death death yeah like people go forward onto something else Mm. and once they've gone forward into that they can't come back yeah and that was and that's the end of the episode isn't it and that's the end of the the show and that's the end of the show yeah any final thoughts on the episode or the or the show in general two years ago i never would have believed that i'd be at this point and I think that is very obvious in the way that we discussed the show mm. <laughs> at the beginning. I realize how much I have changed as an artist, as a person in the world. And it is not all attributable to the show, but it is part of that. And I think that is the greatest thing that a piece of art can do is change somebody. Um, mm. So even though it is not a perfect show, it still means a lot to me um, because it helped me figure out who I am and face up to it and shortcomings and all of that. So yeah, like I could critique pieces, but instead I will just sit with it and be happy Mm. with it and move forward in my own little rowboat. I think I have been a lot harsher than you on the show um, <laughs> would be a fair assessment. I think because I haven't had the same experience of you as, mm. as you, I mm. think that your background mm. professionally, mm-hmm. aspirationally and aspirationally, I think means that you maybe, I mean, I even would say, I'd go so far as to say, I think that you and Elena Smith as a creator are on, similar paths even if in different ways right that's um wild um and i think that therefore the show 
I, I've said this before, but I think that you are the target audience for the show. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that what, what I definitely got out of it, 100%, first of all, is that it was funny. Um, and yeah. even, when, even when I thought the show didn't work, mm. um, I enjoyed watching it. You know, mm. like there were one or two bad episodes, but for the most part, it was always consistently at least good. Yes. Like, um, and it made me laugh and the characters were fun. And I think that I can say that it has given me an abiding relationship with Emily. Mm-hmm. And that I will be able to come back to her poems with fond memories uh, and also with new insights. And then the other thing is like, for me, the best bit about this has been spending time with you, Kyle. Yeah. And like where we are so far apart mm. um, physically and things, like I struggle very much to maintain contact with other friends in Japan. Whereas the discipline of like having something to come together and talk about has really been great because it means that I've had this opportunity to spend time with a dear friend. So yeah. if I, you know, when I die and go on to whatever afterlife there is, if I meet Emily in the mm. afterlife, which I hope I will mm. in one way or another, one of the things I'll say to her is, oh, you know, my friend Carl and I, we sat around and we talked about you. Yeah. And it was really nice. So thank you for giving us something to talk about, mm. you know. So yeah, that's my reflection on our two-year voyage into <laughs> Elena Smith's lesbian fever dream. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. Like, I wonder what would have happened to our relationship if we didn't have this to keep us in contact and help us adapt our relationship to our geography. Mm, I mean, I think we'd still be friends, but I think yes. that we wouldn't get to see or I say see we wouldn't get to speak with one another as often as we do so mm. and I love you oh I love you too Kyle mm. but, you know that, my poor little heart um <laughs> Kyle loaves of bread oh this god final do I really have to I mean I, yeah, I think they do, knock yeah. it out of the park um nine and a half I don't know god Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Nine and a half loaves Nine of bread. Yeah. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it is a first on the uh, Edicts podcast because I'm going to give it 10 loaves of bread. Fuck yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to outdo Kyle on this one occasion. <laughs> I, I want to just send like Elena Smith like a little note that says, you did it. And, in, did and, it. In the, with, and with the note will be like a box and it will be, 10 loaves of bread. <laughs> Just, there has to be some way to deliver 10 loaves of bread to Elena Smith's house. She will not eat it, but she will know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> That's my goal. Well, okay, we're going to do the sign-off, but then I've, I've had an idea in my brain for how to end this show for a very long time. And so say all the bits. Oh no, is this, but I don't know what you're going to do now. I know. So I'm nervous. That's oh, what gosh. makes it exciting. Oh God. Okay. We're coming to the, this is the end of our podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. Um, mm. It's been lovely to share these thoughts 
with you, our audience, um, I think it's safe to say that Carl and I may well return one day in the future. Mm. Um, mm. There are a few nebulous ideas for further podcasts. We don't have anything set in stone, so we can't mm. announce anything here, which is okay. We're happy with that. But, you know, if you've enjoyed listening to us chat and you would like to hear more, just keep your eyes peeled. Um, yeah. And you never know when we might resurface somewhere when you least expect it. Mermaids from the basement. <laughs> That's going to be the name of the next podcast. <laughs> Mermaids from the basement. Um, if you would like to write to us, you can at edictsonedicts at gmail.com, all lowercase. And I'm pretty sure that Kyle will look at those emails. I will look at them as well at some point. Um, mm. If anything, just so that I can have the full edicts experience. Um, <laughs> That's it, really, yeah. for edicts on edicts. So the way that this is going to end is we're going to end on an Emily poem, but it is not the Emily poem that you expect. Oh, no. We are going to end with no commentary by reading the poem that Higginson read at Emily's funeral by Emily Bronte. Oh, lovely. So okay. here we go. Hmm. No coward soul is mine. No trembler in the world's storm-troubled sphere. I see heaven's glories shine, and faith shines equal, arming me from fear. O God within my breast, almighty ever-present deity, life that in me hath rest, as I undying life have power in thee. Vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts, unutterably vain, worthless as withered weeds, or idlest froth amid the boundless main. To waken doubt in one holding so fast by thy infinity, so surely anchored on the steadfast rock of immortality. With wide embracing love, thy spirit animates eternal years, pervades and broods above, changes, sustains, dissolves, creates, and rears. Though earth and moon were gone, and suns and universes ceased to be, and thou wert left alone, every existence would exist in thee. There is not room for death, nor atom that his might could render void, since thou art being and breath in what thou art, may never be destroyed. <laughs>